Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 20, All for One and One for All, Parmenides. The ancient pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides of Elia is the father of Western metaphysics. It's thus probably appropriate that no one can agree on what he is talking about. In this episode, we're going to introduce this fascinating figure and look at what we can say about his thought, what we can't say, and have a bit of a look at the importance of Parmenides for the traditions of Western esotericism, most especially his importance for the thought of Plato. Who was Parmenides, then? Well, he's a Greek writer from Elia, a town in, you guessed it, southern Italy, known nowadays as Velia. We can't date his life with any certainty, but he's definitely after Pythagoras and definitely before Plato. So, end of the 6th century BCE, basically. Something like 510 for his date of birth, but we really can't say when he died. But it's clear anyway that he's dead by the time Plato was writing. So what do we know about his life? Almost nothing. He's thought by some scholars to be reacting philosophically to Pythagoreanism, which is plausible considering he wrote at a time and in a place where Pythagoreanism was a living tradition, and his doctrine of radical oneness of being could well be a kind of response to the twin principles of limit and unlimited, which, as we've seen in previous episodes, were a pretty consistent doctrine across early Pythagoreanism, even if we don't have direct evidence for them in the thought of Pythagoras himself. Some people think he was responding to Heraclitus as well, but this remains a matter of opinion. It's not impossible, but there's no really strong direct evidence for it either. There's also evidence that he was influenced by the thought of Xenophanes, an early philosopher whom we saw in a previous episode being called a fraud by Heraclitus in the same breath as Pythagoras. Well, what did Parmenides do? Here we do know something. What Parmenides did is fundamentally shape the course of Western thought in an absolutely basic way through his ideas about being. Now this is being with a capital B. Parmenides is perhaps the first thinker really to grapple with the idea of being in itself. What is it to be? What is it to exist? Okay, we say that a table and a cat and a river are, they have being. But what does this mean? Is it something that can be abstracted from them mentally? Like, say you see a red fire engine, and then in your mind, you take the red out of the fire engine and just look at a pure red in your mind's eye. Is that what we're talking about here? Or can it really be abstracted? That is, can being exist on its own without some specific thing that exists? And specific things, tables and cats and rivers, they're changing all the time, right? So how can they be said to have being? The river to take an example near and dear to our friend Heraclitus, whom we met last week, how can the river have one being if it's actually an ever-changing stream of different bits of water, each, presumably, with its own being? It's a problem. And the more you think about it, the more problematic it gets. So this is all fairly weird, and the explanation which Parmenides gives is weird in appropriate measure. But before we follow Parmenides down the rabbit hole of pure being... We should make things even weirder by contextualizing this talk of being. Because Parmenides doesn't just say, Hello reader, this is a discussion of being in itself. Get ready for some metaphysics. Quite the opposite. Parmenides wrote a poem. And not just any poem. A poem in dactylic hexameters. That's the meter of Homer and Hesiod. 
who were the two most renowned sources of wisdom and literary culture in the Greek world. So he's speaking in a, a register familiar to his readers from epic poetry. And his vocabulary is almost entirely Homeric. That is, he's talking not only in the traditional epic format, the dactylic verse form, but even the traditional vocabulary itself, using this very old-fashioned Greek with lots of archaisms. And he's making it do something utterly new, tell a metaphysical story. But maybe the way Parmenides tells the story tells us something about the metaphysics. Now, we only have fragments of Parmenides' poem, but we can say a few things about it. It has three basic parts, or at least scholars divide the fragments up into three sort of hypothetical parts. The first part is the proem, the introductory story which sets the scene. We'll get to that in a minute. And the other two sections, if they were sections in the original poem, are conventionally known as the way of truth and the way of seeming or opinion. It's the way of truth where Parmenides gets into his metaphysics of ultimate being that blows everyone's mind, but the way of seeming has a lot to offer us as well, although little enough survives of it. But first, let's look at the proem. Let's set the stage the same way Parmenides does. How does one set out to write a poem about the true nature of being? Well, you start on a chariot pulled by mares in the company of goddesses, the daughters of the sun, of course. Parmenides speaks here in the first person. He's being carried along in the chariot. The wheels are spinning. The axle is making a kind of howling noise, speeding along. Where they're speeding along is unclear. But Parmenides tells us they're leaving the abode of night and moving into the light. That's important, and we'll return to that. Then they come to the mysterious gates. And here we may as well quote from the prose translation of Richard McKirahan. This is all from fragment one of Parmenides, which is a very long fragment which preserves the proem for us. There stand the gates between the journeys of night and day, enclosed at top and bottom by a lintel and threshold of stone, and themselves fitting closely to a great architrave in the ether. The keys, which allow to open first one gate, then the other, retributive justice holds whom the maidens blandished with soft words. Now the maidens are the daughters of the son I mentioned earlier. Whom the maidens blandished with soft words and persuaded cunningly to thrust the locked bar for them in, in a moment from the gates, which swung opened and made vacant the gulf of the gateway, turning successively in their sockets the bronze-fitted posts, fitted to them with pegs and nails. Whereupon the maidens drove the chariot and mares straight on through the gates along the road. So... They've passed through some gates. Now, no one can agree what these gates are. They're similar in some ways to the description given in Hesiod's Theogony of the House of Night, which also has a bronze threshold. Okay, the, these gates have a stone threshold and bronze gates. Hesiod's House of Nights has a bronze threshold. And there are other similarities in the descriptions as well. They're called the Gates of Night and Day in Parmenides. And I think the best bet might be that since we're dealing with Daughters of the Sun here, these are perhaps the gates that separate night and day through which the sun passes, maybe at the end of the day, maybe at the sunrise. So possible that Parmenides thinks the sun literally goes underground each night and reemerges on the other side of the earth each morning. So then these gates might be at the very horizon's edge. And of course, they would lead into the underworld. But anyway, we're speculating here. Um, a lot of speculation has been made about these gates, but it kind of doesn't matter. It may be that the gates don't have a location in the normal way things have locations anyway. 
So the chariot drives through these gates, and then a goddess greets Parmenides. We're never told her name, and she addresses him as youth, o cure, which has been a source of much speculation. So let's return to the translation here. And the goddess received me warmly, and taking my right hand in hers, spoke as follows and addressed me. Welcome, O youth, arriving at our dwelling as consort of immortal charioteers and mares which carry you. No ill fate sent you forth to travel on this way, which is far removed indeed from the step of men, but right and justice. You must be informed of everything, both of the unmoved heart of persuasive reality and of the beliefs of mortals, which comprise no genuine conviction. Nevertheless, you shall learn these also, how it was necessary that the things that are believed to be should have their being in general acceptance, ranging through all things from end to end. So Parmenides is going to find out about the unmoved heart of persuasive reality and the beliefs of mortals, which are wrong and comprise no genuine conviction. But for some reason, it's important that Parmenides learns about them as well. So these are foreshadowings of the ways of truth and of doxa, opinion, that we mentioned earlier. Now, the way referred to is a recurring theme in the poem. There is a way, a hodos, of truth and a way of doxa, which is opinion or seeming. And Parmenides needs to learn about both from the goddess. Note that the way of truth is, quote, far removed indeed from the step of men, end quote. In fact, as Parmenides goes on to discuss the way of truth, we'll see that it's far removed from anything which seems conceivable. But reality is persuasive. This, I think, is part of the reason why Parmenides has often been characterized as the earliest sort of ultra-rationalist. And there's something in this. Now, by rationalist, I mean the term in the philosophic jargon sense. That is, rationalist as opposed to empiricist. An empiricist is someone who takes evidence, experiments with it, sees what happens, maybe invents a hypothesis based on this, and so on. They start with the evidence of the senses and work from there. A rationalist, by contrast, looks at ideas and cognitions themselves and seeks truth that way. Descartes' famous, I think, therefore I am, thought experiment is a classic bit of rationalism in this sense. He's using logic in a way divorced from the physical world. So Parmenides' persuasive truth is persuasive because of this kind of persuasion, the following of a logical chain of reasoning to its final conclusion. In fragment 8, we get a taste of what his conclusions are. The goddess tells us, having eliminated a bunch of seeming possible options for what reality might be like, using logic, that, quote, only one story of the way is still left, that a thing is. On this way, there are very many signs that being is ungenerated and imperishable, entire, unique, unmoved, and perfect. It never was nor will be since it is now altogether one indivisible. For what parent of it will you look for? But maybe we're wrong to say that this is the result of a purely rationalist undertaking. Or why then is a goddess telling Parmenides all this, if he just came up with it himself through his own powers of logical thinking? I leave that with you, the listener, only pointing out that I see an interesting parallel here with the kinds of goddesses that we meet at the beginning of traditional epics. The Iliad of Homer begins, Sing, goddess, the wrath. We might want to attribute the singing, which follows 24 books of it, 
to the Homeric poet or poets, but we're literally told that a goddess, the muse, is doing at least part of the singing. So maybe this is something like that. The goddess in Parmenides' poem is like the muse of metaphysics. A prize to any listener who can think of an appropriate name for such a muse, because she doesn't get one in the poem. Now, how much weight you give to such a goddess's role in composition depends a bit on how you think inspiration works. As it happens, I think the muses are real in some way, so I tend to take Parmenides a bit more literally here than most people. So, being is ungenerated and imperishable, entire, unique, unmoved, and perfect. It has no past or future, or seemingly no time whatsoever. It is eternally. What is this supposed to tell us? There are actually a few different interpretations about this. In fact, there are as many interpretations as there are interpreters, but there are a few main lines of interpretation. First of all, it's worth looking at the verb to be in Greek. One thing which is pretty much agreed on is that to be in Greek means in some sense to be somewhere, to be located. That is much like the concept indicated by the German word Dasein. It's not just pure Sein, it's, it's always Dasein in some sense. It also has an implication of to be true that it lacks in English, which makes it difficult to translate, and also makes Greek ideas about the truth claims of language difficult for us to understand, as any reader of Aristotle is aware. But there's a basic split in the uses to which the verb can be put. Predicational versus existential. Now, it's all going to get a little bit metaphysical here, but bear with me. The predicational use of to be is when we predicate something of something else, as in, this podcast is fascinating. Here, the verb serves to link the being of two different concepts, telling us that they share in some measure of being. In this case, an aspect of the podcast is its fascination. So in other words, it's a fascinating podcast. That's what this podcast is fascinating is telling us. Its fascination is part of its being. The existential use of to be, by contrast, is simpler but also more problematic when you really think about it. This podcast is which in English we would normally say with the alternate phrasing, this podcast exists. But this podcast is kind of works as a sentence, and it gives us an idea of what the existential use of to be is all about. It simply indicates the existence of something. Now, these semantic spheres of the verb to be are going to be very different in English and very different in Greek. And in fact, they're very different in the Greek of Parmenides' time as compared with the Greek of the post-Platonic world. So it all gets very complex, but there's a few points here that are worth remembering. And this difference between the predicational and existential uses of to be is very, very important and will come up again in the history of Western esotericism. The predicational versus existential debate comes up a lot in interpreting Plato, and some people think He's basically confused the two concepts, making a mess of his philosophy in the process. And we'll come back to that in a later episode. But sticking with Parmenides for the moment, we do have a minority view, that of Patricia Kurd, that what Parmenides is talking about is a kind of predicational being. Basically, that the essence of whatever exists, and here we mean things like cats and tables, you know, actual things, that the essence of these things is in all the ways we've just seen. So a cat is eternally a cat, it's timelessly a cat, it's imperishably a cat, and so on. In other words, each thing has an essence, its being, and that is what never changes, and so on and so forth, and which is one. But scholars have countered, 
and I agree, that this is reading back a rather Aristotelian understanding onto Parmenides. I tend to agree with the majority view, exemplified by Owen and Coxon, but shared by most historians of philosophy, that the goddess is talking here of being in an existential sense. The actual act of existence itself, somehow treated as a noun rather than as a verb, as a kind of ultimate reality, in fact. And this makes Parmenides' thought much more alien and mysterious to our ways of thinking than the curd view. Oh, and did I mention that being is one, and that since only being exists, there's nothing but the one, unchanging, timeless being. In other words, whatever we think the world is like, whatever the way of how things seem, the way of doxa, shows us, the way of truth shows us how they really are, or rather, how it really is. It really is. And nothing else. There is no change, there's no time, there is only the one being. This is the persuasive heart of stable reality. Parmenides, then, according to this reading, is the first Western monist. And he's not just a substance monist. That's someone who thinks that everything is at base made of one kind of stuff. He's the real deal, a full-blown monist who denies any multiplicity or change. This is the conclusion which he reaches, or rather, which the goddess reaches, through a mind-bending process of philosophical reasoning, and which Aristotle would call almost insane. And in the fragments of the way of truth which follow on the proem, the reasoning does get highly strong. I wouldn't want anyone to think that I'm denying Parmenides' credentials as a rationalist philosopher by bringing up all this goddess stuff. The sections which survive from the way of truth are among the all-time classics of pure reasoning. But I do want to argue what is obvious to anyone reading the poem in Greek. Pure reasoning in Homeric meter and vocabulary is very different from pure reasoning in dry philosophic prose. And since the pure reasoning stuff is dealt with quite well by the analytic philosophers, we should spend a little more time looking at the more esoteric sides of Parmenides' philosophy. First of all, Parmenides' decision to use a Homeric and Hesiodic form for expressing his wisdom should not surprise us. It's only in retrospect that we've come to expect what we call philosophy to appear in bland, straightforward prose form, and that's pretty much under the influence of Aristotle and his followers. Now, philosophic prose was around in Parmenides' time. People were experimenting with it already. But Parmenides is sort of claiming something bigger here than mere rational knowledge, it seems to me. The import of his message, that there's a secret core to reality which is purely one, cannot be overemphasized. But Parmenides does his best. He uses the weight of traditional forms and traditional forms of authority, in the form of the goddess, to give weight to the knowledge which, as the goddess says, is far removed indeed from the step of men. There's another traditional element which we haven't discussed yet, the narrative of the journey. We mentioned that the ways, the hodoi, of Parmenides' narrative are important. Well, we find the topos of both the youth and the hodoi, the ways, in, you guessed it, mystery cult traditions. And the ways, specifically, match very well with a common topos, that of the fork in the road found in the underworld. So in Book 6 of Virgil's Aeneid, which is a Roman work and, of course, much later than Parmenides, the fork in the road that separates the ways which lead to the place of punishment, which is heavily frequented, and 
the way to Elysium, the place of reward for the souls of the departed, which is passed down by very few, is a famous image. In Parmenides, the fork in the road separates the way of opinion, which is the most frequented way, from the way of truth, which is far removed indeed from the steps of men. So we have a branching of the ways, and this is a topos that appears again and again in our admittedly fragmentary accounts of visits to the underworld which emerge from some mystery cult traditions and also in the literary sources. Actually, Parmenides alters this traditional trope in an interesting way, mentioning a third way, the way of non-existence or non-being, but the goddess says that this way doesn't exist. It's a way which is not a way, so she presents it as a sort of metaphysical dead end and basically says there's another way, but actually that way is impossible, so let's forget about it. Fragment 3, quote, Come now, I will tell you, and preserve my story when you have heard it, about those ways of inquiry which are alone conceivable, the one that a thing is, and that it is not for not being, is the journey of persuasion, for persuasion attends on reality. The other, that a thing is not, and that it must needs not be, that, I tell you, is a path wholly without report, for you can neither know what it is not, nor tell of it. So there's a lot more that could be said about the way of not being, the non-existent way, but I want to talk about the underworld for a moment. We've seen in episode 6 that the underworld was a place to go for knowledge. We have accounts from both Homer's Odyssey and Virgil's Aeneid, which is modeled on Homer's Odyssey in this respect, of the eponymous heroes traveling to Hades to gain knowledge by questioning the dead there. And we also saw in that episode that people here on Earth will often try to summon up ghosts for the same purpose, because ghosts know things that we don't. This is the theme of katabasis, the journey down. In his book, The Dark Places of Wisdom, Peter Kingsley has argued that Parmenides' account is actually referring to the ancient practice of incubation, whereby people would descend into caves there to engage in meditative practices, to commune with chthonic deities, or to sleep in quest of ritually prepared dreams containing insights. This goes beyond the provable, of course, but it's perfectly plausible, and archaeological finds of incubation caves at Parmenides' hometown of Velia lend striking weight to Kingsley's interpretation. And those of you who are paying attention when we were discussing Pythagoreanism, may recall that among the thematic tropes which appear in the stories of the Pythagorean soul manipulators, or shamans so-called, descent into caves features very prominently. We've also seen in episode 12 that the mystery cults often dealt with a kind of ritualized death as a preparation for the real thing. One of our best sources for what happened in the mystery ceremonies, in this case the mysteries of Isis, comes from the wonderful novel The Metamorphoses, also known as The Golden Ass, by the Platonist philosopher Apuleius, which will be the subject of a later episode. Apuleius's main character, Lucius, tells us of his initiation into the rites of Isis, using circumspect language because he isn't allowed to reveal certain things, but nevertheless giving us some tantalizing tidbits. I came to the boundary of death, and, having trodden on the threshold of Proserpina, I traveled through all the elements and returned. In the middle of the night, I saw the sun flashing with bright light. I came face to face with the gods below and the gods above, and paid reverence to them from close at hand." Now the reason I bring these passages up, both the Homeric and Virgilian 
accounts of catabasis and the initiation account here in the Metamorphoses is that there's some controversy about where Parmenides' journey takes place. Several models have been proposed, most notably a journey up or a journey down. The journey up, a celestial journey through the heavens, has been posited because of the idea that one would naturally seek to travel upwards in search of knowledge. But this is a later Platonic idea, deriving its most potent form from Plato's image of the cave, where, as we will see, he sort of completely reverses the normal Greek story of going into caves in the underworld to seek wisdom. He makes the cave a place of darkness and deceit, and one has to emerge out of it to find wisdom. But this interpretation has against it the Hesiodic background of the House of Night mentioned earlier, and the fact that for the Greeks of Parmenides' time, the natural place to seek wisdom was downward within the earth. But there's also the matter of the Daughters of the Sun and the possibility that the chariot is the chariot of the sun itself, which we would expect to travel across the sky. So we would expect some kind of celestial journey here. And we can't forget that Parmenides journeys out of the darkness and into the light. Surely a catabasis to the underworld would mean the opposite. Well, remember our passage from the Metamorphoses. In the middle of the night, I saw the sun flashing with bright light. Scholars agree that this must be some kind of reference to a light seen shining in the initiation ceremony of Isis, presumably after the candidate for initiation has been plunged into darkness for some time. We have other references to a midnight sun shining within the earth. In Book 6 of Virgil's Aeneid, the wanderers upon the way to Elysium actually step out of the darkness and walk beneath a glorious heavenly panoply. The underworld, in other words, has its own heavens. While I cannot claim to have authority here to settle the matter one way or another, I'm firmly in the catabasis camp. I think the underworld journey fits best with what we know of Greek culture, Homeric and Hesiodic precedents, mystery initiations, and many other scraps of information that can be gleaned from our sources. And it makes sense in the first instance. The underworld is where one goes for supernatural knowledge, which is what the goddess presents Parmenides with, and it's a place with a bright shining light reached after passing through a place of darkness, which is exactly what Parmenides describes. Now, the midnight sun shining in the underworld is a theme which I find somehow strangely fascinating, and I'm happy to say that it will return again in the later Western esoteric traditions. But for now, we're nearing the end of our episode, and we should have a quick look at the promised history of Parmenidean interpretation. For this, we can go all the way back to Plato. Parmenides was from Elia, as we've mentioned, and a number of other philosophers followed in his footsteps, known as the Eliadic school nowadays. These thinkers adhered to Parmenides' incredible doctrine of the unity of being, and sought to show, often through using paradoxes, that change and coming to be are impossible. You may well have heard some of these paradoxes, like the famous paradoxes of Zeno of Elia, Parmenides' disciple, such as the tortoise and Achilles paradox, and the arrow paradox. Now, Plato was an acute and avid thinker, and pretty well versed in all the philosophy current in his time, but it's generally agreed that his greatest debt was to the Eleatics and Parmenides. His greatest struggle was also with these thinkers, as he sought somehow to find a way to account both for the nature of true being and for the nature of the phenomenal world of change and coming to be in which we find ourselves. Cue the theory of forms. So we're a step closer to Plato, the father of Western esotericism, which would on its own have been a worthwhile reason for doing an episode on, on Parmenides, but we should not by any means disregard the thought of the man himself. His thought is counterintuitive 
but also somehow strangely compelling, like the midnight sun shining in the dark heart of the world. I highly recommend finding a good translation. McKirahan's translations we've been using are quite careful, and when used with the footnotes, give a decent idea of what might be going on in the fragments, and immersing yourself in Parmenides' thought on the ultimate ground of reality, being. Or rather, immersing yourself in the goddess's revelation to Parmenides. We shall encounter Parmenides again fairly soon, but this time in a fictional form. Plato's dialogue, the Parmenides, is perhaps the single most important writing of his for Western metaphysics. Certainly, it was the most important for the late Platonists. In the dialogue, we see a young Socrates being schooled by the old Parmenides when he visits Athens. It's not only Plato's most influential metaphysical discussion, it's also his most baffling, and that is saying something. Because in it, Plato seems to have Parmenides systematically demolish the theory of forms, which Plato has, in so many other dialogues, spent huge mental resources in constructing. What's going on here? We'll come back to that in our episode on the dialogue the Parmenides. We should be aware that for the history of Western esotericism, Plato's fictional Parmenides is actually more directly influential than Parmenides himself. Much of Parmenides' writings were preserved by the late Platonist Simplicius, and also by Sextus Empiricus, the Greco-Roman skeptical philosopher. So substantial fragments of his poem have been known about for quite some time, but Plato's dialogues have been known about in their entirety in the Eastern Mediterranean since Plato's own time, and in the Latin West since the publication of Marsilio Ficino's Latin translation in 1484. But of course, Parmenides's indirect influence isn't really that indirect, because without Parmenides's thought, there would never have been a Plato in the first place. Plato's ontology is shot through and through with responses to the challenges raised by Parmenides and the Eleatics. And before we leave our mysterious philosopher, we should pause for a moment to think about this problem of being. We've barely touched on it in this episode. Let's face it, listeners to the Schwepp are probably more likely to be chariot journey with a goddess in the underworld type people than let's talk ontology type people. And I'm the same way. But the problem of being really is the specter lurking at the heart of Western thought. Why would we even talk about the being of something when we can just talk about the thing itself? Why say the table is when we can just say the table and the fact that there is a table is either implied already, or if it isn't, then maybe it was unnecessary and an additional concept to begin with. But we, or certainly at least those of us who speak and think in Indo-European languages with their robust verbs to be, cannot escape from this idea of being, or at least not without a serious mental effort. We can't even talk about reality without using the predicative form of to be all the time. You can't talk about things without saying blah is blah, X is Y, and the is is always sticking with you in these kind of sentences. So we're stuck with being. And from medieval metaphysics right down to the philosophy of Martin Heidegger, the obsession with finding being in its pure form keeps sort of erupting forth from Western ideas. We'll see it in alchemy, we'll see it in Kabbalah, in Sufi mysticism, and many other places. But before we get to any of that, We'll see it in the thought of Plato and in the later Platonist tradition, which really is the fons et origo of Western esoteric thought. So stay tuned. In the meantime, be like the way of truth, far removed indeed from the step of men, and stay esoteric. Or should I say be esoteric? 
But being is esoteric, if Parmenides is right. But if being is esoteric, doesn't that mean that I'm using the idea of being in both its existential and predicative forms in the same sentence? But how can you say that being is something when being simply is isness itself? Is is? But then we certainly can't talk about not being, so that would imply that we were...